Welcome to Paradigmatic Silences. I'm your host, Michael Essien. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, please subscribe. This will allow you to get the latest episodes of Paradigmatic Silences. In today's episode, I talk with Dora Dome, attorney at law. Dora will share her thoughts on critical race theory, which is essential to her work and who she is as a person. Also, Dora will discuss some of her work with the school districts to ensure that due process for students is fair. Her work seeks to interrupt systemic oppression and to reduce the possibility of disproportionality. Let's listen in to part one of two parts of Dora Dome, Attorney at Law. Welcome to Paradigmatic Silences. I'm your host, Michael Essien. Today, we have a special guest. Could you please share who are you, what is your name, and what is it that you do? Good morning, Mike. Uh, my name is Dora Dome, and I'm an education law attorney, and I've been representing school districts for about almost 25 years, um, and that's what I do. Okay. Are you, a, are you local to the Bay Area, uh, or did you grow up elsewhere? I actually grew up in Los Angeles, uh, so I, uh, I grew up in the West Hollywood area of Los Angeles, uh, went to undergrad there and then actually moved to Hawaii for 12 years uh, in the 90s and then uh, relocated back to California but landed in the Bay Area. So I've been in Oakland, California since 2001. Okay. And, and what brought you to the Bay Area when you relocated here? You know, just um, wanting, wanting something different. I, I knew I didn't want to go back to L.A. Uh, and just trying to find a place that that suited me. And I had actually never been to Oakland in all the time, you know, that I lived in California. I realized I'd been to the Bay Area many times, but that meant San Francisco. And so I had come out to Oakland to visit a friend. Um, and I was kind of blown away and, and primarily blown away just with the diversity. It was the first time I had come to a city where it was like, there were a lot of people of color, primarily black people, um, who were, who looked like me, who, you know, were, were just like all over. And I was like, this is where I want to be. <laughs> Oaktown. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you said that you are an education attorney. Uh, why this profession out of all the things that you could have chosen? Uh, why did, why did this call you? You know, I, I, I can't say that it called me. I, I, it was kind of pure luck that I ended up in it, but I'm grateful. Um, you know, I, I, I met an attorney when I was 19, a black woman, and uh, it was the first time I had met an attorney. I didn't even know what an attorney was. And uh, she and I became very close friends and, you know, she became a role model for me. And I was like, you know, I want to be an attorney, but quite honestly, I had no idea what that meant. I just knew I wanted to be a, an attorney. You know, here's a black woman who I respect. She's an attorney. She's making good money. Sounds like a good thing. So I just decided when I was 19 that that's what I was going to do. And so after, um, <clears throat> excuse me, after undergrad, when I uh, moved to Hawaii, I spent a couple of years just kind of, uh, you know, trying to get acclimated there, figuring out what's going on. And I decided, well, you know what, let me just apply to law school. And um, I applied to 
several, got into several, uh, and ended up going to law school in, um, in Hawaii. And about a year into law school, I'm like, what am I doing here? <laughs> why, why am I doing this? Um, because what I realized is that I had made this decision as a young person just based on kind of my infatuation with this person <clears throat> rather than any real understanding as to what it meant to be an attorney. And once I got into law school, it became clear to me that our legal system is, you know, one of the main sources of the perpetuation of the oppression of people of color, of people who are marginalized. And as I'm learning about how ingrained, you know, racism, sexism is in our legal system in law school, I'm sitting here going like, how, 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 how can I work in this system? Like, you know, I don't want to become part of this problem. And so I really needed to um, figure out even just to stay in law school, what it meant to me to be an attorney. Like, how could I be part of the legal system in a way that I felt, um, in a way that I felt was not perpetuating it, but actually helping to fix it or, or, or making a difference. And the conclusion that I came to was that I was going to be a judge because I figured, you know, as a judge, I could actually have some direct impact. And so that was good enough to get me through law school. <laughs> um, and then when I got out of law school, I was really, again, just not clear. I had not really thought through what I wanted to do. And um, so I took a clerkship uh, with a judge and for a year. And then again, after my, after my clerkship, I um, was like, what am I going to do? And there was a position open for um, protection and advocacy in, in Hawaii. And they represent families and uh, with who have students with disabilities and they needed an education law staff attorney. And, you know, there weren't a lot of things I, I like, I have no idea, but I'm like, let me try it out. And that was actually my introduction into education law, um, focusing in on special ed and Hawaii was actually in this unique place where um, they were under a consent decree for um, failing to provide uh, mental health services uh, for students with special needs. And as the staff attorney for protection and advocacy, I was automatically part of the legal counsel for that case. Uh, and so I met the top education law attorneys, you know, in, in Hawaii, uh, and I just started getting into it. And then I, the IDA was reauthorized in 1997. And I, again, because of that position, I was automatically on that implementation team to look at Hawaii state laws, uh, to make, to, um, and I would join the committee to, uh, rewrite our uh, Hawaii administrative rules to comply with the changes in IDEA. And so I got this crash course into education law and, and it was perfect for me because it was like, wow, okay, here is something in the legal realm where I, I can use my, my training, my expertise and actually make a difference. And so that's how I got into ed law and I've just stayed in it ever since. Well, I want to thank you for your decision to stay in education law. I know um, students and families <clears throat> and even uh, districts, they're benefiting from your expertise and your focus. Um, you are a very interesting person. Um, I had the pleasure of uh, being one of your students in uh, up at UC Berkeley in the graduate program. 
And you had a particular frame that was that piqued my interest into something that I hold dear as a as a leader in uh, education to this day. It was called critical race theory. Um, could you share a little bit like critical race theory? What is it? How did you come about it or, or your thoughts around it? Um, so that our listeners could get an idea of what this framework is. Sure. So uh, critical race theory is a theoretical framework that um, tries to basically uh, make sense of the, the institutional structures that perpetuate racism. Um, and, and the reason I was drawn to it was because um, as I was doing some, some self-education on, uh, you know, kind of race in, in the U.S. and just trying to, like, kind of work through that uh, in the late 2000s, um, I came across critical race theory. And I, it was the first time that I felt like I was reading something that had language that described situations that I had experienced or that I had observed, but I didn't have the words to, to explain, like, why was this a bad thing or, or, or how did this fit into these institutional, you know, um, uh, systems of oppression. And so CRT was, was like that, that aha moment was like, okay, that's what this is. That's what this is, you know? And so I became, you know, very curious about it because I felt like, you know, one, we, we, we live in a society where we are actually socialized not to talk about race uh, and, and the implications of race. And obviously that is by design because, you know, the, the system doesn't want people talking about it. And so CRT was uh, provided language for us to actually start being able to have conversations and having common language to be able to de describe the, the, the things that were happening to us or happening to our kids uh, in, a, in a common way. And so I just you know, embraced it for that reason and have continued since then to try to continue to educate myself on it and learn more about how it can be useful in having and facilitating um, discussions around race in our, in our educational system in our society. And as a, as a framework, um, are there, are there elements in it that, uh, you feel are more relevant to some of the things that we're seeing today um, like how does, like when you start thinking about racism in this country and how it exists, it's like since its uh, inception, um, how does that framework address some of the things that we're seeing today? If, if oh, well, I mean, it, it addresses, it addresses all of it. I mean, you know, so CRT uh, consists of essentially five tenants um, and the, 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 way it works is that so these tenets describe kind of phenomena that that exist in our society and pretty much in any any incident any act conduct can actually fall can fall into one of those tenets so for instance the tenets are uh, counter storytelling uh, whiteness is property the permanence of racism uh, the critique of liberalism and uh, interest convergence. So those are the, the five tenets. And pretty much, you know, they, they came about, so just a, a little background. So um, critical race theory is kind of derived from critical legal studies uh, and critical legal studies came about in the seventies, you know, with legal scholars, you know, 
trying to find a way to talk about the ways in which the law perpetuated, you know, racial uh, or racism or racial inequities. Um, and so CRT is kind of a derivation of, of the critical legal studies, a- applying it to education, you know, so, um, when we, so then when we think about things, you know, the ways in which racism is perpetuated in our educational systems, you can look at different, you know, policies, practices, um, you know, just data about trends that occur and you actually can fit them into those tenants and again, have a way to have common language that describes these phenomena that are occurring um, and also making it like clear that this is not unique. This is by design. Our system is set up for these things to happen the exact way they're happening. And now we have language in, uh, to talk about it. Okay. <clears throat> so it's a framework for not only analyzing what we're seeing, but uh, how to even engage in a conversation. Absolutely. Which could potentially lead to solutions. Ideally, right? yes. But, but uh, you know, for me, it's like even that recognizing it, you know, I feel like, you know, racism, the, the, the way in which it's embedded in our systems, it, it's meant to be invisible, right? The, 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 the privileges that, that are tied to race or the lack, you know, of privileges that are tied to race, depending on where you're at uh, or, you know, what race you hold, um, that, that is designed to be invisible, right? So that, for instance, white folks can walk through the world and, um, and, and believe that you know everything that they're accomplishing is just based on their hard work and their ethic. And it's not to say that there's they don't work hard and they don't and they don't have a, a good work ethic, but that 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 mindset fails to acknowledge the ways in which the system is organized and structured so that they can just go through the world and, 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 and do hard work and always succeed. And the, and it also fails to acknowledge the ways in which, you know, people of color can't do that. So it doesn't matter that we also work hard, that we have a good work ethic. The system is actually set up in ways that we don't get the benefits and the privileges that come with being white. And, um, and so I, 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 for, for me, it's like really a way of, just recognizing that, you know, that this, that this inequity that exists and, and the extent to which the, um, the extent to which, you know, racism is embedded into our structures, because I feel like until we get people to even understand that it exists, we can't have really a conversation about solutions. Right. I mean, we yeah, like agreed. if they don't actually believe it's a problem, then what what is the impetus or the motivation to try to to solve it? You know, or they if they don't understand that the problem is actually the institutionalization of racism, then when they're thinking about solutions, they're 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 trying to solve the wrong problems. You know, they're they're putting the solutions on the backs of the victims, you know, the people who are adversely impacted by these systems rather than recognizing that it's the systems themselves that need to be fixed. Yeah, uh, it's the paradigmatic silences. Absolutely, that you can you can silence conversation or shift conversations around ideas. So 
When you uh, think about critical race theory and what's happening, like in education, I'm not just, but it's not just in education; it's in all areas. Uh, one of the biggest buzzwords that is flying around today uh, is equity. Um, equity is everywhere, right? People are talking about it. Um, how does how does critical race theory assist with addressing equity? Well, you know, I think from from my perspective, I feel like again, it, it's it allows us to to have uh, authentic conversation about the the real issues, right? That it we it helps us identify where the where the problem really exists, and it, it takes it from, like I said, the victim to the institutions to the structures, um, and then it allows us to, you know, if you're if we're willing to then examine those structures and those institutions and think about the ways in which you know. Um, racism is just embedded in them, you know, just, just part of them. And, and only in being able to recognize, can we then think about what, what are the things that we can do to make these systems more equitable? And so that's how I see it is really, again, that recognizing where, you know, where the, where the problem, where the problem really lives. And then uh, how do we change those, those policies, those practices, those structures, in a way to uh, make them more equitable so that when we look at outcomes for our students um, that we're seeing that those outcomes are, are actually more equitable, right? We're seeing, we're seeing less disproportionality, whether that's around how students are disciplined or you know, whether they have access to rigorous courses like you know, GATE programs or AP and honors uh, and, um, and mm -hmm. how even are they engaged? You know, do they have a voice in um, in in our schools, in our in our classrooms? Uh, how are they represented? And so, for me, I see that it, it it centers the problem where it belongs, and then allows for us to have conversations about how do we actually change those structures such that we can have more equitable outcomes for our students. Okay. With your uh, critical race theory, um, have you had, <clears throat> excuse me, have you had opportunities to uh, work with districts around um, critical race theory to impact or improve outcomes for the students you know, that they serve? I, a little, I have. You know, I recently just published a book called Improving Student Achievement Through the Creation of Relationships, uh, Critical Race Theory, Counter Story. And um, the book came out of uh, what was originally a keynote that I did about 10 years ago for the uh, Association of California uh, School Administrators, AXA. And uh, the reason I decided to publish the keynote was, you know, especially in light of the events of this past year, you know, highlighted obviously by George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, uh, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, Aubrey Mal, Malbury. Um, I felt like we we needed we needed to figure out a way to get you know our educators to really start understanding uh, the role that race plays in um, achievement and outcomes and experiences, and also their role in perpetuating some of the you know kind of adverse outcomes that exist in our, in our schools, you know, and not to say that that's by any means intentional, but I think, you know, when you can walk through the world without having to think about the experiences um, or, you know, of, of, your, of your students, 
which I think is primarily what happens because right, we, we, we live in a state where 70% of the students in our public schools are kids of color and 70% roughly of the teachers are white. And so there's already this kind of disconnect. So anyway, so in, so in terms of, you know, writing the book and recognizing that educators really needed to, to start thinking differently about their roles in the perpetuation of racism in our schools and in our systems and our practices, I really, I felt like it could be a tool that was easily accessible that kind of just gave them a primer about what is critical race theory? And, and in the book, what I do is I use my own personal experiences um, to illustrate each of, each of the tenants. And so not only do they get the, the theoretical kind of definition of each tenant, they get to you know, read examples of my educational or schooling experiences that, that, that uh, illustrate the, that specific tenant. So giving it a little context, you know, and then I encourage them to, um, to think, you know, like there's a, a graphic organizer at the end of the book. And then, so I encourage them to, uh, once they read it and kind of start digesting the tenants and, and examples to start, you know, making it personal, like thinking about, you know, their own personal experiences in terms of the tenants so that they can start, you know, getting used to, you know, practice using that language. Um, and so that is uh, one way that I have started working with districts is in making that book available. Um, and then a lot of school, school districts are actually, you, 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 excuse me, utilizing it for book studies. Um, and some of the uh, districts have actually uh, asked me to join their book studies so that they you know, can have a book study with the author. Um, I do a training on critical race theory, uh, and it's actually the only <clears throat> training that I do that it is not, not technically legal and uh, where I will uh, do a session with a group uh, basically going over my keynote where I do an introduction to each tenant. I give them a, you know, 10 minutes of, you know, stories about how my personal experiences that illustrate the tenant. And then I allow the, uh, or I put the participants in breakout rooms for about 20 minutes where they then talk about the tenant in terms of the theoretical, you know, their, their understanding of the theoretical concept, but then also how it applies to them personally. And I'll do that for each tenant where they have an opportunity to go into their groups and, and discuss it. And then we talk larger at the end, we talk uh, you know, on a kind of broader level about, so you've talked about it, you know, we've talked about it theoretically, you've talked about it on a personal level, how it may show up in your life or how, you know, whether that's your own personal experiences or things you've observed. Um, and then, you know, the challenge is really for them to then okay, now it's time for you to think about this, you know, organizationally or professionally, like how, how do these tenants show up in your, in your practice or how do these tenants show up in your schools? And, you know, and I challenge them to, you know, identify, you know, one, two, three ways in which it shows, shows up and then make a commitment to, you know, trying to change that, to address that uh, such that, uh, it no longer um, acts as a barrier for for their students, and so that that's how uh, it, I'm able to do this work with some of uh, my clients. 
Okay. Well, that's, that's amazing. And I tell you, your book, um, I'm, I'm holding <laughs> it in my hand now uh, as we're talking. <clears throat> and I do want to read a passage from it because I, I just really want to share like how the book actually played or the commentary around the counter uh, mm-hmm. counter story is, is helping like fuel some of the things that are going on, even at, at my school site. So it's like on page 16 of your book, uh, counter storytelling voice of color. It reads the counter story as discussed by Mari Matsuda law professor and credited among the originators of CRT is the narrative that often goes untold, but is necessary to understand the experiences of students of color and the challenges, the normalized dialogues that perpetuate racial, racial stereotypes. Um, so thinking about <clears throat> in schools, when we often deal with discipline more times than not, it's the letter of the law, you know, <clears throat> white supremacy culture, it's there are the 13 tenets. Um, if it's written, um, being objective, et cetera, but, the behavior is something that the child is expressing. And more times than not, when we tend to do discipline, we're not really concerned about what's going on with the child. We're just going to punish what we actually see. But in, in the, if you embrace the whole idea around the counter story, when you see behavior, how do you give space to the child to explain what is going on with them so that we can respond to what we see? And so I think that's how like restorative practices, like thinking about taking the counter story and then thinking about how do I make that into some real systemic things and practices at a, <clears throat> at a school site to benefit children and more importantly, to benefit the adults. Absolutely. Right. Because I think that's the, the thing is the adults, we produce the numbers. We're the ones that produce the, the disproportionality. Uh, we're the ones that do all of the things that end up um, being in the news where we say we have to have improvements. <clears throat> so this leads me to like my, my uh, next question. When you start thinking about um, like what racism would mean inside a school district or with adults inside a building, um, as I'm understanding it, you're not necessarily talking about individual racism where you can point somebody out and say, this person hates a black person. You're talking about something on a, on a bigger scale, maybe Absolutely. institutional or structural. Yes. Um, you know, I, the way it, and, you know, a lot of, if you ask different people, you're going to get, you know, very different definitions about, you know, what they, what racism means to me, means to them. And so, um, and so for, for me, um, when I'm talking about racism, I am really looking at institutional practices, policies, uh, institutional, you know, ways in which systemically uh, racism is built in to perpetuate the disparity that we see. And so, you know, I'm, 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 while I think it's important that we, you know, identify people who have racist ideas, who, who are, you know, who are acting in ways that are racist or discriminatory, like ultimately they are part of the same system and and we have to recognize that systemically this is built into our system and our system actually creates these individuals they create these racist ideas these um, racist beliefs because the way the system is set up and so when I'm thinking about you know what we need to do to to kind of change the outcomes for our our students of color I'm looking at systems that need to change uh, in order to get individuals to change, in order to get the outcomes to change. 
Okay. And so with that backdrop, so I, I do want to transition to my next question, right? So um, thinking about school districts that are racist, I and mean, then I'm talking about institutional structural racism. Can a racist district become anti-racist? Wow, that's a, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, you know, you know, obviously there's a part of me that would love to say, yeah, I, I, I think they can. Um, I think that, you know, we have to remember that schools are still a, a, a subset of our larger society, right? It's, it's, it's an institution in our larger society that is also racist. And so I think that, you know, while I, while I believe we have to try to figure out how to change the, the, the institutional structures in our schools, that that in and of itself is not going to lead to the kind of change that I certainly want to see, um, because we are still part of a larger racist society, a racial, racist structure. And so <clears throat> I believe that schools can take steps to uh, become anti-racist, you know, and I think that would require, you know, a, a, a real honest examination of their policies, of their practices, um, of their structures, and really kind of with it, with the, with the eye to looking at the ways in which they have been developed to perpetuate the inequities that we see and, and with a willingness to really go in and try to make changes to that. Um, I think that, you know, while that is definitely what we want to see them do, I think again, that it's going to be very challenging um, in, within the context of our larger, you know, just educational system, let alone our larger society. But absolutely, I think we need to start going down, down that road. And I do believe that schools can make changes um, that actually make a difference for their students. Um, but again, I mean, I think that it's always going to be, uh, it's always going to fall short because it's not taking into consideration just how our whole society is built on a racist structure. And, you know, as we have seen evidence, you know, day after day in, in every realm that we are living in this very uh, racist society in the U.S., um, until we are really able to, to combat that and really educate people about our true, the true origins of the U.S. and the true history of the U.S. so that people can understand we have the disparities that we have now in our in our systems and that it's not because you know blacks are lazy or blacks don't want to work hard it's because we are part of a system that has you know per, that has perpetually kind of kept us oppressed kept us under the thumb um has limited our opportunities um that until we can kind of really get to that that underlying piece um, I think the type of change that I would that I would want to see the equity that I envision isn't going to happen, you know, and 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 that goes back <laughs> yeah, to the okay. whole permanence of racism, right? When you think about the you know the the CRT tenants, you know, it's the idea that you know 
people find that to be a very depressing thought, but in my mind, and, and certainly, you know, in, um, I think as uh, Derek Bell, who's the kind of originator of that, of that tenant, you know, his thing was, you know, while he understood that this is depressing to think that it's just part of our society and it's never going to go away, it's critical to recognize that fact so that we can think differently about the changes that the things that we need to do, our solutions to see the change that we want, because his position was that, you know, we keep doing the same things and they aren't working. <laughs> they're not, they're not leading to the change that we're talking about. We want to see. And that's because people think that, Oh, eventually it's going to get better. Eventually that's going to change. Eventually we're going to stop being racist. And he's like, no, we're not because our whole system is built on that. And so we need to think differently about the solutions and, and, and accepting that reality that racism is permanent will help us think differently about those solutions. Yeah, so like, and I, I agree with you that we're talking about racism is a conversation for the larger society and that schools themselves are just a manifestation of the larger society. So if you're just trying to fix what's inside the schools, it's, I guess the, the phrasing is like, it would just be a random act of equity because the larger system will still continue to um, put pressures on the, the changes within the school Absolutely. to keep getting the same results, which leads me, <clears throat> which leads me to a, a, a thing around, well, in critical race theory, um, what role do you see uh, interest convergence as a possibility for backing into this conversation around uh, race so that some real changes can, can well, happen? Well, you know, it, 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 interest convergence is, uh, is, is, uh, uh, an interesting one for me because I feel like, you know, so the tenant basically says that, uh, you know, real change or benefits for people of color are not going to happen unless there is an articulable benefit to white people. So that's, that's the, you know, the basic kind of concept uh, supporting that tenant. And so, you know, and, and we have definitely, you know, seen that throughout society, you know, like one of the examples um, that actually I learned about my, myself uh, while listening to the 1619 podcast um, was about like the desegregation of uh, hospitals. And that, you know, you know, I learned in listening to that, that, you know, for decades, there were black doctors who were trying to get hospitals desegregated, you know, obviously to improve the care and access to medical care for, for black folks. Uh, and for decades, you know, they, they were unsuccessful. You know, they could not get the hospitals to desegregate. There was not any motivation for them to do it. And they hit roadblock after roadblock. And then I want to say in 1964, maybe, or 60, somewhere around there, somewhere around the time of maybe of the civil, uh, shortly after the civil rights act, um, the uh, the federal government created their Medicaid um, or Medicare system, Medicare system. And um, but in order for the hospitals to access that federal funding, they had to desegregate. They had to comply with the uh, the laws, you know, the anti-discrimination laws of the Civil Rights Act. And so once that happened and once these hospitals who had been unable to desegregate for 20 you know, 30 years, you know, or unwilling to even consider it, they were able to desegregate within four months in order to have access to that federal funding. 
So that is like a, a, a very powerful example of interest convergence. They had no reason to do it. And then and at the point at which they did, then they decided to do it. Um, and so if we take that to, you know, schools, you know, what we see, you know, we, we see that happening where we see, you know, financial support for programs don't happen when the, the benefit is only for the kids of color, right? You know, it's very hard to get, you know, buy-in for, from, from the, the schools, from the, from the families about, you know, redirecting funding to, uh, to support the kids most at risk or the most at need because they look at that as, oh, well, if you take this funding for, for these kids, then that means our kids don't get any more funding. And the only way that we are, usually see, you know, supports and resources going to these more marginalized groups is if there's also a, a, a benefit to, to, to white families. And then we will see that those things will, will pass. And so, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's frustrating that that's how it works, but that is, that is how it works. And so, you know, I guess one strategy, um, um, you know, using it to your, to your benefit would be is, you know, just like what we see in politics all the time is, you know, you have your agenda about what you want to see change, how, what piece, what, what additional thing do you need to add in there that makes it appealing to the, to the, to the, you know, white families or, or white perspective that gets their buy-in and, and takes it out of the realm of your redirecting important resources from our kids to these kids to, and change that, that conversation from, oh, well, yeah, we recognize that these kids need to benefit. And as long as our kids continue to benefit, we're good with it. Right. Um, and so. Yeah. Yeah, just like this is this the the thing that that really uh, CRT that really speaks to me is this entrance convergence, and not from its its overall perspective, but uh, my role as a site administrator, being a principal at a school site, we just live in that area. Uh, we're responsible for everybody's interests. I don't care whether you are African American student, English language learner, special education. Um, the people who are not getting a lot of press around some challenges are, are Polynesian students, Pacific Islanders, um, who, who show up um, in, in, in data disproportionately. But as a site administrator, uh, we have to live in this convergence because everybody's interest mm -hmm. is coming through your office. And I was just thinking about like, how can this be a way to back into a conversation inside of schools? But even that is challenging because people are fixed and locked into their own perspective around what well, right. we need ours. And when you begin yes. to think about it, everybody needs the same thing, but, but everybody's arguing just for their piece, right. but everybody needs the same thing. Right. And I, yeah, I struggle no, with I that totally as a site leader myself. And, and, you know, and again, it's, it's, it's problematic, but it's real. You know, and so I think that, you know, trying to figure out how, you know, and, and, and some of it is going to be in the messaging, too, is like, you know, what the part that I think people fail to understand is how, you know, how 
meeting the needs of the of the students who most need them actually improve everybody's outcomes, right? Um, if you could actually teach in a way that meets their needs or uh, provide supports, um, recognizing that there are kids who are, you know, at more risk, that the, the, the existence of those supports, even though it may have been originally designed to target a particular group who was struggling, the existence of those supports help everybody because they are best practice. They create tools to respond regardless of who the individual is who needs it, right? Um, and I think that on some level, yeah. it's a framing issue. You know, it's like, and I think about that even like when we look at like Prop 16 and affirmative action, you know, I think, you know, here we, we have, you know, it, it's mind boggling to me, uh, oh, not really, but it, it's, it's, it seems like a, a counterintuitive that we can have like record numbers of white folks, um, you know, protesting with, you know, side by side with black folks, finally embracing, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, in response to the killings that occurred. Um, but then we, we and in essence, sending a message that they, they understand our plight and they stand with us and they recognize that this isn't fair or appropriate. Um, and then, you know, we have the election and we have affirmative action on there, which will like start to to try to start writing some of the ways in which the systems have, have um, you know, continually excluded people of color from, you know, educational opportunities. <clears throat> and yet we, 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 we can't pass something like that. And, it, and I think it comes back to this interest convergence on some level um, and to the extent that, you know, the ways in which it was framed, you know, people only see it as a benefit for, you know, people of color and, and not only a benefit for people of color, but like it's taking something away from them. And it's also an issue about whiteness as property, right? Because this entitlement to, you know, all of the seats at the school, you know, or, or access to all of the resources and that if you pass affirmative action, all of a sudden, they're not going to get what they are entitled to without recognizing that the only reason or the, the main reason they even get the, 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 um, the things that they often get is because the, the system is set up for them to get it. And that the only way we are going to combat that or undermine that is to explicitly, consciously, deliberately say, we are going to do this different. We are going to make sure that people of color are at the table, that people of color have access to, you know, um, our higher ed institutions at, at higher rates, you know. Um, but again, because the way it's framed, the way, and, and it's been framed this way, again, intentionally by the people who oppose affirmative action, is that they're going to take something away from you, you know, that, that, that limited pieces of the pie, mm -hmm. without recognizing how increase access to educational opportunities, you know, diversity in our schools, you know, bringing everybody up actually improves the outcomes for our entire society, not limits the outcomes for a particular, you know, group of people. Absolutely. And I, and I, and I think, you know, like low hanging fruit, um, it's easy to um, protest um, police brutality uh, the killing of unarmed black men, 
um, because they see that as like something is happening over there, right? But uh, Prop, Proposition 16, you know, we're now talking about a system thing. We're, we're really talking about some significant changes, um, which impacts everybody's neighborhood in terms of the, of the seats, in terms of uh, potential education, uh, jobs, et cetera. And that's, that's a little different because the one thing I've seen absent from the conversation around like the protest is I haven't heard any real conversation around uh, policy changes, resolution changes, uh, altering the agreements between police unions and the city, right? Uh, like absence of those conversations, it's easy to, to, protest. Um, but then when you get into the, the deeper conversations where there's going to be some real change within the system, I think that's where we tend to get some, some pushback and which is leading me into my, my next question. Um, I'm sure we've touched on <clears throat> bits and pieces of it, but I, I do want to, uh, lean into it specifically. Um, why do school districts have difficult times just improving outcomes, right? I think we've, we've talked about a lot of things, but districts are now even saying they want to improve outcomes. They're saying we want to uh, improve the graduation rates, um, the reading scores, the performance on SBAC ELA, SBAC uh, math, but they're still struggling. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, from, why? again, you know, I, I'm not I'm not an expert in why all schools struggle, but I certainly can share that in my experience, what I observe is, you know, one of the barriers is lack of sustained effort, right? Um, I think that, you know, we, we are, we, it feels like we are in a uh, culture that is like, you know, they want, we want quick fixes, you know, we want, we want, you know, we want it pre-made. We want the We want to just, you know, we want the program. You know, we want to just do it, and it's going to change everything. But that ignores the reality about, you know, racism being, you know, ingrained in our society. It is embedded. It is. It is the. It is the foundation of our society. And so, if you are only going to do something once or twice and expect that that is going to change you know, hundreds of years of racist practices and policies, um, then, you know, you're, you're fooling yourself, right? And so for me, I believe that, you know, there's a lack of sustained effort. I also believe that oftentimes they're putting their resources toward the, uh, the manifestation of the problem rather than the problem. Right. This is going back to, you know, as we talked earlier about NCRT is, you know, if you if you don't recognize that the problem is systemic uh, and, and, and so you think the problem is, you know, with the individuals or, you know, that there's a, you know, and that's really where our society is like there's, you know, black folks are deficient. We're lacking in some way. We're not we don't have the, the skills or the work ethic or the capacity and if you focus in on, well, how do I improve your skill, your work ethic, your capacity, you're ignoring the, uh, the, the real issue, right? The, the problem, you're, you're trying to fix a problem by fixing the outcome, the, the, the result of the problem versus the actual problem itself. And so, you know, I, I'm sure there are probably, you know, others would have, there's lots of other things, but just, you know, given the time we have now, like those are two things that I see are, are, are as being, you know, instrumental in why we don't see a lot of change.
This represents the end of part one of a two-part conversation with Dora Dome. Part two will be released the following week. Paradigmatic Silences would like to thank Dora Dome, attorney at law, for taking time out of her busy schedule to share her thoughts on critical race theory and the important work she performs with districts to ensure that the due process is fair for all students. If you would like more information on Paradigmatic Silences, visit InsideTheMindOfAPrincipal.com and read my blog on The Opportunity Gap and Paradigmatic Silences. You can also follow me on Twitter at Michael C. Essien. Paradigmatic Silences is sponsored by Essien Education Group. Until next time, this is Michael Essien saying, may equity and social justice empower us to speak and act.